small band of men on a perilous search for the man-beast of Tibet, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me. I see. I see what, what men must not see. They're after me. They know it was me that did it last night. They're after me. They're after all of us. They just killed McNeil. Why is that? It was an accident. It's me next. They know it was me. Stay here. Wait. Ed, I can hear you. I'm coming. You've got to understand that isn't Shelley. It isn't anybody. I can hear his voice. It's in your own mind. It's just happened to me, too. Warning. Only those with stout nerves and strong hearts should risk seeing the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. This is a late, late night recording, this Mr. Is, Blake. I know, this is... We're getting old, getting this too is, old for this shit, Dion. <laughs> I'm saying we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back to 2015, 1985. Yeah. Well, welcome to another edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm here with the one and the only... Jay Blake. And, of course, and, uh, with me, as always, is... Dion to the Baya. And, um... We have to apologize up front. This is the October 2023 edition of our Halloween Madness, and uh, we had something planned for September, but just work got in the way. Blake was in California for a month working on his dock, um, and I was traveling the country with my job, uh, my day job, covering presidential elections in Milwaukee and Simi Valley, so um, we're recording our anniversary movie, which really sucked balls. Um, we didn't get to do it. Yeah. So first, I, I think we're first. That's, we know that the romance is gone when we we missed our anniversary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all. We're just all going through the motions, you know, just uh, helping out with the hand and like this is not doing me anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, we still plan. We're still talking about trying to get the the um, the the anniversary movie in, but maybe we'll try for November. But. I know November is going to be a very busy month for me, and you know Blake's always busy, so we're going to try to do it. But we wanted to really try to emphasize and get something down on acetate before um, before uh, the year was out, because the last one was what I think May, right? Or, or we did a back to back. We did Dead Heat, and then we had done Last Crusade prior to that, and that was like what June or I mean, yeah, I don't even I don't remember. 
I don't remember I'll be either. With you. <laughs> we did it for treat. Whatever treat. Yeah, we died, did it. That's what we. Yeah, recorded. right around when treat died. A couple weeks after treat died, and then uh, prior to that, I think we did we did a two we did a double hitter because then we had just done the we did Last Crusade in correlation with the coming out of the Crystal Plume Bird of the Crystal Plumage Indiana Jones and the Burden of Crystal Plumage. <laughs> <laughs> And the fantastic movie. <laughs> we did the fugitive just before that. We ended up doing a Harrison the Ford one two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we did do the one two punch, the old Harry Ford. Um, that was exciting too. I forgot. And then did we do anything prior to that? Did we open? How did we open the year up? I don't even remember. I don't know anymore. We might not even. And then then back before that, I think we did Day of the Dead. Right? Maybe that was our last year's Halloween movie. Was Day. I think last year's Halloween movie was Day, and then I'm sure we did something for Christmas. Uh, Whether it was uh, uh, Muppets, no. What was? It? Maybe did we just talk about our favorite things? I know we did you that know, one year. Raindrops on rose, <laughs> roses and whiskers on kittens. Yeah, one yeah one year we talked we brought together um like a a combination. But we're here today, and we're back, and we're happy as ever. We're on some mescaline, so we're really good. PCP mescaline, leveling it out with some uh, Joe Cola, Mega Joe. <sighs> we got boxes of pizza galore. Uh, Mrs. J. Blake, um, his mom, was kind enough to um, bring us tons of Mega Joe Cola from Price Club <laughs> or Sam's Club or BJ's, whatever your wholesaler is. Two, two so, buckets full of pizza. This, uh... Yeah, one bucket for each of us because she goes, I know how you boys get hungry. So of course my eyes are bigger than my stomach. I've had three fourths a box of uh, a bucket. <laughs> three fourths a bucket. Three fourths of a bucket. And um, I'm already my stomach's already talking to me, you know, because all that cheese. Late at night I can't heal, handle the cheese. I suddenly become lactose intolerant. All those nights of binging crab macaroni and cheese at night for dinner or for a late night snack is really starting no to take tolls no on more. my. No, no more. Let me so, tell you, it's um, getting a little stale. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting a little, little bit. It's like going back to Elio's, my old love. Old love. Um, so um, we're nice and full, and um, we're tired, and that is a combination for a good sleepover episode. We'll see. And we we'll got a pretty see. exciting one. We do. So we Unfortunately, one, one of the reasons we chose this movie is is a bit of a downer. I'm going to dedicate this episode to uh, a dear old friend of ours, Dave Hastings, who passed away in September. Uh, the brothers Hastings, Dave and Steve, have been talked about a lot on this show. Yeah, right? I think we brought them up quite a bit. Steve did the music, our theme music, and uh, Dave oh, yes. sat in on an impromptu drunken silver bullet episode for us. Many, many oh, years yeah. ago. Uh, Which is you, right? The two of you did it, right? Yeah, yeah. I was visiting him in D.C. And uh, we were drinking, as Dave was known to do. And uh, and Silver, we watched Silver Bullet. And we started talking about it. And I said, hey, I got a recorder. And I do this crazy thing with Dion where we talk about movies. Do you want to talk about Silver Bullet? And I'll I started recording <laughs> completely un, uh, unresearched. We literally it was very it was literally completely impromptu. I just hit record and we started talking about Silver Bullet and uh, Dave was a wealth of information about Silver Bullet and Stephen King. And, and how long did you get out of that? Good, good, good was, hour and a half or so. Or? I don't know. I mean, it was at least an hour. I mean, that was back. I think it was even back in the day when our 
our conversations weren't too much more than an hour and 15, hour and a half. Yeah. But uh, we went to college with Dave. You roomed with him. And I roomed with him one year, and then he lived with me in Port Chester after school for a while. Film guy. We met him because he was a film guy like us, but a year ahead of us. When you go to film school, for me, one of the best things about it, and I'm sure we've talked about it before, is not just like the education, but that you meet people that share a passion that you have, that maybe you didn't know a lot of people in high school that shared that passion. And uh, when I was a freshman, when Deanna and I were freshmen in college, I started working on a lot of upperclassmen's films, uh, people who are sophomores and juniors. And when you're getting to know people for the first time and you know that you share a common interest, you start talking about that common interest. And one of the things would be like, oh, so what kind of filmmakers are you into? Like, who are you into? What are your favorite movies? Blah, blah, blah. That's the small talk when you're in film school. And every time somebody would ask me that, I would say, I love John Carpenter. And every single person who we were freshmen who was a sophomore or a junior would say, oh, have you met Dave Hastings? Every time I would say I like John Carpenter. And every day I just get to ask that question again. They go, oh, you got to meet Dave. And so finally, <laughs> mid-second semester maybe, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Chachi, was making a doing something on the soundstage, and he invited me to come. I thought under the guise to help, but it was just to come hang out. And when I got there, he's like, "Hey, you know that guy Dave Hastings? Everybody keeps talking about." I said, "Yeah," and he pointed. And he says, "That's him over there." So I walked up to Dave, and uh, Dave had long hair back in those days, and he was standing there with a beer in his hand, just like looking at the set on the soundstage. And Glasses I, on. And I uh, I walked up. I said, are you Dave? And he looked at me. He said, yeah. I said, I hear you like John Carpenter. And he started laughing. And uh, that was the beginning of Dave's and my friendship. And uh, we spent many a, I, would, I wouldn't even say sleepover, but uh, he lived in apartments and Deanna and I lived in the dorms. But then. After that, the remainder of freshman year was me hanging out at Dave's place a lot and watching horror movies until the sun came up and then going to McDonald's <laughs> at the early morning light and getting In the old shamrock van, right? And uh, yeah, he had a he had a, a tan, he had a van that he had he had painted tan with a silver shamrock logo. On the side. Like an old Chevy van, that like a work van where you'd open the side door and the back wasn't finished. Yeah. You know, you'd see like the metal and stuff. So whoever sat in there would have to sit like on the wheel hump, and you had, know, and then you yeah. stop quick, you'd roll, you know, and you'd you come actually towards see the, you know. like, you kind of see that his exact van in Halloween three in like one or two shots, you know, it wasn't like one of the main vehicles of Sham, Silver Shamrock, but you do see it. And so he had this... One and he'd painted silver shamrocks on the side of it, and he called it Rich. The van, the van's name was Rich. But uh, that watched a lot of movies with Dave. Some for the first time. Um, I think Zombie might have been one of those movies, the Lucio Fulci movie. Uh, I know we watched Silver. We watched Halloween three a few times. Uh, Last House on the Left, Weekend at Bernie's, I watched with Dave. And Dave and I just became 
super close friends and uh you know because we Dion was in school as well like you know we just all became friendly and then sophomore year I moved in with Dave and uh Dion I and someone we don't talk about anymore and Dave would start making movies for fun on VHS tape and we made a couple of classics and <laughs> And Twinkle Rainbow being one of them, I think, which we brought up once or twice here. Yeah, and one of my, I mean, I think for me, the greatest gift Dave gave me was that um, even though I was into horror film music and John Carpenter and I was getting into Goblin, which he wasn't necessarily super into, living with Dave, uh, Dave fucking loved John Carpenter and he loved John Carpenter's music. And quite literally, I don't think the passion in horror film music that I ha am known for now would have kind of existed in this way without Dave. And uh, I remember when I was doing Score to Death, when I had the idea to interview film music composers, it wasn't called Score to Death yet. It wasn't anything yet. It was an idea. I knew Dave would be like the target audience for it. In a lot of ways, like I made the first score to death book for Dave. And Dave's even mentioned in the beginning of the Alan Howarth chapter, and he's thanked in the credits. I mean, in the, in the you know, dedication or whatever at the end, the after, after the, at the end of the book. And, but I said to him, I said, I had this idea, and I kind of want to talk to horror movie composers, but I don't know if I'm the right guy to do it. Like I've read, I've been looking at some interview books with composers, and I don't know anything about music theory. And uh, he and I talked about it, and uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that, like, hey, maybe you should just do a few and see how they come out. And uh, thinking that most people would say no, I reached out to, like, seven, eight composers, thinking that maybe one or two would say yes. And uh, it turns out they all said yes. And all of a sudden I realized I was just going to – I was doing a book. <laughs> It wasn't like a couple of test interviews anymore. And so Dave was always just one of those guys who I would uh, talk to about, what, you know, what I was doing, life. We talked on the phone a lot for many years. I visited him in uh, – he lived in North Carolina for a while. I visited him there a couple of times. He was up from your. He was lived up. He was from your neck of the woods. Yeah, he grew up. He grew, Albany, he grew up in the Albany, New York area. So sometimes during the summers, back from school, we would hang out. We went mini golfing. We watched Phantasm and Wishmaster late at night and stuff like that. And so, a fellow musician like yourself too. You guys have shared that passion as his brother Steve did. Yeah, Steve is an amazing. His brother Steve is an amazing keyboard player and actually played in my band for a few years in New York City, but. Um, Dave was a guitar player. And I guess what I will say, uh, maybe, because I don't want to spend all day talking about Dave, but Dave was one of those guys who just had talent. He could sit down behind the drums and he could play the drums. He, he put a bass in his hand, he played the bass. <laughs> he was a very talented guitar player. He was a good singer. Uh, when it came to film, he was a great writer. He helped me write a script that uh, I have yet to do anything with, but I think it's kind of done at this point. But Dave helped me write the first draft of it. And, uh, I mean, in terms of the talent, 
I'll just say he had a lot of talent, but he had a lot of um, uh, doubt. He was a guy who was unfortunately riddled with a lot of um, bullshit. And uh, he he was very self-conscious and was cared way too much about what people thought. And, um, and I think it held him back in a lot of ways. And uh, it, it's unfortunate because he was a guy that could really do anything he wanted to. He just had that kind of talent. And a heart of gold, too. I mean, he was one of the people I would think of that out of everyone I've ever met in my entire life, he wouldn't say a bad word about anybody and he can befriend anyone. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of the cruel irony is that yeah, anybody who met Dave loved Dave, but Dave yeah. often had this weird paranoia that people thought he was weird or he, it was just, a, he, he, he had a lot of issues. And I think unfortunately that might've been one of the things that did him in, in the end, but um, literally anybody that met Dave loved Dave. He was just fantastic. And in some ways, like, you know, the, the origin of Saturday Night Movie Sleepover has has many, the, the family tree has many, many uh, branches that led to Saturday Night Movie Sleepover. One of those branches was a thing I used to do uh, with the Hastings brothers for a very short time. Um, I don't want to name it because I don't want anybody to look for it, but <laughs> online, but... Uh, we would late night talk about drink drink beer and and watch a movie and then talk about it for a few minutes and um, that's kind of where the theme song for the show comes from. So that was one of the the inspirations that kind of led to to what Dion and I do now. Um, one of the many, but unfortunately, Dave uh, died of cancer, and unfortunately, I didn't get to talk to him for a while there at the end. Uh, and that sucks, but um, uh, I respect his decision to not want to talk to his old friends during his time. Um, but it, it breaks my heart. And uh, and uh, he was truly, you know, I used to say, you know, you hear something like if you live your whole life and you and you only had like one great friend, like you were l- fucking lucky. And uh, I'm lucky enough to. Uh, be 45 and and have uh, Dion and and um, a friend, another friend of Dion's and mine from college, Aaron, who I'm still close with, and and Dave. I mean, like he truly was with you know with Dion, like one of my best friends, and and it's because of his love for John Carpenter that we're doing Prince of Darkness today on the show. So, yeah, <laughs> appreciate uh, you guys sitting in there listening. Dion, if there's anything you'd like to say before we jump into this Dave dedicated uh, discussion, please. I, I, I hog the mic for too long. No, I just remember vividly watching with you guys at your apartment when you guys first moved in. We did a the long two tape version of Salem's Lot. I remember doing that. <laughs> yeah, I remember us watching Nightmares, and that was an inside joke between us, and then that. That translated into our short Twinkle Rainbow, which was the little ball that Dave had that you get from Spencer's that you turn on. It would be a little party light that, you know, looked like a rainbow of colors. And we based a horror film one night drinking. You know, that was our thing where we would be bored on, you know, and then like, should we go talk to girls or should we make a movie? We're like, well, let's make a movie. (laughs) So we, we, we used to, we came up with about a half a dozen, I'd say, 
what uh films we would you know write on the fly improv and scenes and then make the arc as we went along and um out of the ones we did i think twinkle rainbow was the pinnacle of that, that was and the, still yeah, holds up that was the masterpiece yeah and um we did a couple of those uh which were funny and then you know we'd use the, you know rich his van or we'd use my car at the time dion had a neon which was very comical and um you know yeah it was just dave was a great guy dave was absolutely amazing and he was just full of life and didn't have a bad word to say about anybody and he'd help anything or anyone and um you know it, it's just a, a, a huge tragedy what happened to him and um you know um my heart goes out to his family and his brother steve his twin brother steve they were twins so um that's surreal in a sense as well um so yeah um this one's for dave um uh Dave will be sorely missed, and he's kind of still with us, you know, in yeah. a way. Um, don't want to get too sobby for everyone with their Kleenexes, but um, Dave was amazing, and he still is. Um, and his memory lives on, and, and trying to pick something hapdash for this episode, we were trying to figure out, you know, a week before, hey, let's, we got some time, let's throw something together. We were like, well, you know, what do you know, what do I know that we can do quick, that we don't have to do a lot of research on, or read a book, or read three books and a novelization. <laughs> And we were looking back at the old, looking down the alley, and uh, I, I think you suggested, you said, well, you know, I know a lot about John Carpenter, <laughs> and I know him all, you know, and we haven't done Prince of Darkness yet, and it was one of Dave's favorites. And um, I know it's kind of on the back end of the Carpenter filmography for people and stuff like that, which might make it even cooler to talk about. Um, and since we have covered, I don't know, I don't know we've covered a good, good yeah, I percentage mean, of Carpenter. I think, I think there's kind of like, not too many Carpenter movies we would do on the show at this point. Like, I think this, maybe Starman. Memoirs and Invisible Man. <laughs> maybe Memoirs. I love Memoirs. Um, but I think that's it. Yeah, Ghost of Mars, maybe. But, yeah, you know, it's like this was, this is, this is almost clearing off the plate, you know. So, and uh, this is, this is a movie where I hadn't seen really until a, I don't know, maybe like five, six, seven, eight years ago. I'd never seen it. Um, it was it just looked freaky to me, you know, and it was just one of those that wasn't always as talked about as his other classics, or maybe because it wasn't held in such a high regard, a must see. I hadn't seen it, so um, you know, when I was burning DVDs back when you still did that, I got grabbed this guy and then watched it with the wife, and um, scared the wife so much she didn't want to rewatch it again this week when I was gonna. She's like, "This is too freaky for me," and. Um, yeah, you know, so this was only my second viewing watching it when we watched it today for the podcast. I remember, do you remember, amazing. A, do you remember if like a thousand years ago, Lincoln Center did like a big horror movie uh, thing around October, and I think you came to some of it. They did the thing and Carpenter spoke. Yeah, I came to you with that. They did a Q&A with Carpenter. I did, that was like 2002 or so, I think. Yeah, it was a thousand years ago. God told me to. God told me to, and Larry Cohen spoke. Yeah, I saw. I went that. I went to that with you too. And uh, I remember t talking to Dave, and you know, out of all the movies they showed, where directors came and spoke, and uh, director didn't come and speak at every one, every screening of every movie they did. But I remember telling Dave, I was like, "Oh, we went to go see uh, Carpenter at the thing," and I think Dave might have been there. Dave might have even asked a question at the thing one. But he wasn't sitting with us. He might have been there kind of separately. I raised my hand, but John didn't pick me. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> but I got to ask him when we went to Monster Mania. I got to ask him the question because he was there for what we talked about a couple of years ago. It's like, would you ever consider doing a straight-up Western? And I still don't remember what he said. 
He's like, yeah, maybe. Next question. <laughs> but I remember the one da- movie that Dave went to go see, that wanted to go see, I think he went by himself, was he went to see Prince of Darkness. He wanted to see Prince of Darkness on the big screen. I remember he telling me, he was telling me, like, he's like, oh, the print was beautiful. It looked gorgeous. So I, I know that Dave was a big Prince of Darkness fan. And uh, as I stated earlier, Dave's in my relationship kind of started because of John Carpenter. So, and this is a movie that uh, I saw in high school, uh, Prince of Darkness. There was a period of time there and a lot of the sleepovers that kind of spawned. Like, hey, let's do a podcast about sleepover movies. Some of that was I would spend a lot of time with my friends uh, hanging out and watching movies and sleeping over each other's houses or just watching them till real late and then going home. And I remember me and my buddy Pete would get it. We got into a thing where we would rent a horror movie like every Friday and had some great, great. If we ever do the shining, I got a great watch in the shining story. But one of them was, and often would be a bunch of us, but in this particular instance, you could walk to a, you could walk to a video store from his house called Banana Video. And it was on, Banana Video was on a somewhat busy street, but you would turn off that street into his development. And then between like his house and that busy street were, were woods. So you would walk through the woods, <laughs> through the woods to get to Banana Video. And you come up like behind Banana Video in a strip mall, <laughs> um, like just come like through the grass and everything. And so we would always walk over to Banana Video, and then there was like a there was an there was a takeout. There was an there was an Italian restaurant in Troy called Te, Test. I think it was called Testos, and uh, there was like a takeout location next to Banana Video, and. Um, before banana, before it was called Banana Video, I think it was called Leeds Video, L E E D S. Um, but so we would get like food from Testos, and we would get a movie. And I remember sitting in Pete's like tiny little bedroom, just the two of us with the lights out and watching Prince of Darkness. And like I sat like in the desk chair, and he sat on his bed. And we watched Prince of Darkness together. And that was, you know, a year or two later when I rented In the Mouth of Madness with those guys for my birthday sleepover. And then I got kind of like obsessed with John Carpenter. And I went back and I was looking at all the movies that John Carpenter made. And I was like, oh, he made The Thing and he made Halloween and Prince, oh, Big Trouble in Little China. And, you know, looking at all this list of movies that I always remembered, They Live and that I liked, but I never, even though they were all said John Carpenter's Christine or whatever, it never occurred to me that one guy made all these movies. And I remember looking, I'm like, Oh, Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Cause that movie made such a huge impression on me when I watched it with Pete that day, uh, that late night. And I remember for some reason we kept on calling the Dennis Dunn character, uh, whose name is Walter, in the movie, we kept calling him Tommy. And uh, so forever, I thought his character's name was Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we're like, no, nah, Tommy. Um, <laughs> no. And so that was my first experience with Prince of Darkness. And then, you know, as we've talked about with other 
Carpenter movies that we've covered on the show. Did we ever do The Fog? That might be... Yes, we did a Fog as a bonus episode for Patreon, and then we released it. Oh, yeah. To, so To general audiences a year later or so. You know, we way, have done The Fog. Way back in the late 90s, uh, when Dion and I were in college, and I was... Yeah, Prince of Darkness is 87, right? 87, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was obsessed with John Carpenter. We've talked about this with Christine, and pro- certainly with The Fog, that he wasn't as loved, beloved, as he is now. You know, there were movies that people didn't like, like people, generally speaking, even film fans at film school, like The Fog was a dud for Carpenter back then. Prince of Darkness, I would put in that category, too, like wasn't well liked. Now he's had this huge renaissance, and I think these movies have been revisited because of uh, streaming and because of blu-ray release and because of social media and before that and before social media like message boards like this idea of people kind of like connecting with each other over the internet and talking movies and sharing their passions and the availability of things and uh things and then you know he became a bit of a rock star put out a couple albums and like now john carpenter's kind of more respected and beloved than ever, you know, and I think for at least horror fans look back and they, you know, they're like, oh, you know, they his movies have had a new life. Let's just put it that way, that they didn't have even in the late 90s, you know, like they've had a huge resurgence and there's appreciation for things like They Live and The Fog and a lot of these movies that kind of flew under the radar for people for a long time or even horror fans who had seen them, they were the lesser movies in his catalog. Now those, now it seems like there are, he has no lesser movies except for maybe Ghost of Mars, you know, like some of the later stuff. But in terms of like all his 80s, 70s and 80s stuff, like everybody loves it now. But that wasn't necessarily the case forever. I still don't feel like Memoirs gets a, gets the, its turn that it doesn't it's get a, doesn't get a fair shake. No, no. And, uh, but this was certain a movie that always made a huge impression on me uh, from that first viewing. And um, it's funny, I was thinking about, you know, where does it stand in his catalog for me? You know, like what if I was going to if I was going to rate his movies and I was listening to a podcast I did with someone else, you know, I guessed it on. He, You know, it wasn't an episode of our show, but it was somebody else's show. And we were talking about John Carpenter and. uh and some and a Prince of Darkness, and they asked me like, "Oh, what are your like top five Carpenter movies?" And it's funny in in preparation for this show, I was thinking about that. Like, well, like why well, would put Prince of Darkness in the top five for me? And then I was like, "Okay, well, what else would be in the top five? And this guy asked me this question like a couple of years ago, and I didn't even remember him asking it, let alone what I said. And it was the same top five. <laughs> oh, nice! You went back and looked. <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh. Like, I guess I, I it's, it is because I said this years ago off the top of my head. Like, he asked me, and I didn't know he was going to ask me. And I was like, you can hear me thinking about it. For me, top five in no particular order are the Apocalypse Trilogy, which is the thing, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Badness, uh, Starman, and Christine. Those are my top five har- uh, Carpenter movies. And now I can say that with authority <laughs> now that I know that those have been my top five. 
<laughs> for several years. Uh, so it definitely is a, an important movie for me. And I will say, 1987 was a f- hell of a year for movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially horror movies, because not only do we get Prince of Darkness, but we get Dario Argento's opera. We get The Gate. We get Monster Squad. We get uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Predator. Three. We get Dirty Dancing. <laughs> yeah. Lost Boys. Uh, Predator. And um, I don't know if you call, I guess RoboCop wouldn't be a horror movie, but it's kind of dark. Stage Fright, the, the Michel Suave movie, Evil Dead 2. Is Child's Play, is that, or that's 88 maybe. That might not. Yeah, I don't know if that yeah, dolls, okay, though. So. I think Stuart Gordon's dolls. Well, uh, yeah. The Video Oof. Dead, which, oh. which Dave Dion gave me on VHS <laughs> many yeah. years ago. Did you give that to Dave? Did you end up giving that to Dave? I may have given, I may have given that tape to Dave. That's it was true. so scary, I had to give that away. <laughs> it was like, From know. Whisper to a Scream by the great Jeff Burr, who just recently passed away, which is an anthology movie, which I think the wraparounds are hosted by Vincent Price. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought that was Vincent Price. Him holding his head, maybe, or something like that, I think. Yeah, I think on maybe on the... Uh, the box cover. On the box cover. That was 87. Um, we just lost Jeff Burr, which is also very sad. He was a great guy. Um, who I got to know a little bit through email many years ago. Uh, Hellraiser. So great year for horror and other. I wonder if there's a, is there a stepfather movie in there too? <laughs> like... <laughs> well, he did stepfather too. So I don't know. Okay. Maybe the, maybe so the first, the same first one might've been in there. Running man. Running man. A lot of, a lot of good, a lot of good stuff. 87. So it was in good company. I don't think it necessarily did. Is Dead Heat, I think is 87 as well. Maybe it might be 87 or it might be 88. Hard to know. Yeah, everything goes back to. But uh, anything you want to say about uh, Prince of Darkness before we wrap this up? <laughs> yeah, well, it was a good movie, and I'm so glad. Well, I think it has the elements that you really kind of find in a in a Carpenter kind of uh, format, which I really enjoy. You know, you have the people stuck in a one location kind of a thing, which you get like in the thing, or you get um, in a favorite of mine assault on precinct 13 you know it has that uh level of paranoia and i like um which we'll get into the connection to um the british um writer nigel neal uh because i had independently seen that movie the stone tapes which freaked the crap out of me and then well i told you hey i watched the stone tapes which i think you said yeah i've seen that too when we started talking about it and then you realize that that's kind of a big influence nigel neal's quarter mass as well as that movie, The Stone Tapes in particular, which is a classic British TV horror film from the early 70s. And, you know, Donald Pleasance is rocking it, as he always does in this. And, uh, you know, everybody does a spectacular job, and um, it's just a freaky, freaky little movie. Yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs> and with that, we bid you adieu. Yeah. So, 87. Carpenter's coming off of his exploration of working uh, on with big budget studios. The thing was a disaster he did for universal. Uh, he was lucky enough to then get, um, well, there were Halloween movies, obviously, which he produced Halloween two and Halloween three, but he was lucky enough to get Christine, despite the tragic failure of the thing, which we, you can list, you can hear all about in our episode about the thing. 
uh, where I'm deathly ill as we, as we discuss that movie. Well, we did it with the window open, so it's a for, it's a, to add elements to it. And uh, Starman, I think, was a, was a pretty decent success. You know, Jeff Bridges was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in that movie. So I think he enjoyed doing Starman. That was produced by Michael Douglas, and he talks about how it was one of the easiest producer relationships he ever had. Um, well, that that brings me back to the Q&A you just brought up with him. I remember him specifically talking about, I think someone asked him, are there movies that you passed on? And that might make sense because he said around that time he was offered Fatal Attraction and that maybe that's the Michael Douglas connection. And he was like, well, why would I do that when Eastwood already did it called Play Misty for me? You know, yeah. and um, I think he also said he might have passed on Top Gun or something like that, too. He maybe. has a weird <laughs> Top Gun might have been a weed when we did Santa Claus. Imagine John Carpenter's Top Gun. <laughs> Remember we, we read when we did Santa Claus, the movie that he was at one point slated to do Santa Claus, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Great um, movie. There was a lot of things that... Um, I think was, the studios were just maybe thrown at him. Or... He was potentially going to do at, at one point or another. But then Big Trouble in Little China was not a huge success. And I think more than anything, even more than the financial success or you know how the movies did financially when he was working with bigger budgets, with bigger studios, is that he hated the collaboration with working with studios. Like he... He wanted Final Cut. He wanted his, whatever his vision was, that's what he wanted. And he didn't like being told that he needed to do this and do that or cut this and edit that and whatnot. And he's a guy who can certainly uh, kill his darlings. He looked at the fog and said, this movie doesn't work and reshot like a half hour's worth of footage and rescored that footage. So he's not a guy that necessarily needs someone to tell him what needs to be done. And certainly whether or not he actually does, he certainly doesn't want to be told what to do. Uh, it's his rebellious nature. And so coming off of, I guess for him, what was not a pleasant experience of, of making big trouble in little China, he hooked up with, I think his, the producer's name is Larry Franco, who had worked as an assistant director for him on many films. And, uh, Shep Gordon, who was Alice Cooper's manager, manager and basically decided I'm going to go make some low budget independent movies where I have total control. And that was kind of the trade off. You have to do it with the low budget, but you can make whatever the hell you want to. <laughs> and you can make it exactly the way you want to do it. And also by 87, he's Cody's born. Little Cody Carpenter is born. Little Cody Carpenter. And uh, I think by 87, he and Adrian Barbeau are probably split. But um, he's now got a baby. So I think, you know, aside from the fact that it's low budget and that he lives in L.A. and loves L.A., I think part of the reason is, like, you know, Starman, he was on the road across, driving across America to make Starman. I think now that he's got a kid, he wants to be homebound like he wants to be home so i don't think it's any coincidence that prince of darkness and they live are both very much la movies uh shot entirely in la what uh, is what years um they live is that before or after? i think it's 80 That's before I, think, Big Trouble. I think it's 88 oh, oh it's after this okay yeah i think uh, my recollection is that big trouble in china is like 86 yeah 
Prince of Darkness is 87 and They Live is 88. Saw that in the theater, Big Trouble. Nice. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and the only thing I remember about the theater experience is the frightening end when he's on the CB on the truck, which we probably brought up when we did Big Trouble. Yeah. And you have that monster demon on the back of him, like, Be you know. Beast man's on the back of him. Yeah, exactly, from He-Man. <laughs> He-Man might be, no, that might be 86. I was going to say, He-Man might be 87. So being allowed to do whatever he wants, he decides to make easily his weirdest movie <laughs> out of the gate in this deal of, of two move of two low budget movies. I think he knows where his bread's buttered and he decides to make it a horror movie. But as I'm sure I've said in previous episodes, I believe that even more than horror Carpenter's real passion when it comes to storytelling and filmmaking is science fiction. When I spoke to Cody, I think Four Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, I asked Cody, like, what's your dad's, you know, like, guilty pleasure movie? Like, what's the movie that every time it's on TV, it's not necessarily a great movie, uh, but every time it's on TV, he's got to watch it. Like, he, he leaves it on. And he said, well, anything, anything like 50s sci-fi. Hmm. And a lot of those movies are kind of horror movies, but they're science fiction movies, things like Daily Earth Stood Still, Them, you know, that like the the science fiction movies of his youth he's passionate about. And he said, and Independence Day. He said, every time Independence Day we have to watch it is on, we have well, to watch it. Well, it's in it. that vein. And I said, that makes sense because it's very yeah. much like a 90s version. <laughs> like a War of the Worlds or Invaders from Mars. It's very of, much, you know. Of those 50s horror, of those 50s sci-fi yeah. movies. So we get the, with Prince of Darkness, the summer before he makes Prince of Darkness, he's reading a book about like quantum mechanics or something. And why he's reading this, <laughs> I don't know. And uh, if I was to ever interview him about his films, that would be one of the questions. Like, I understand you were reading a book about quantum mechanics. Why? Why were you doing this? <laughs> and uh, it changed his perception of life and things. And so he wanted to make a movie that involved it. So quantum mechanics... Um, and it's it, it's a theory of physics that deal in the nature at the atomic and subatomic level. So we're talking about like Sam Beckett shit right here. <laughs> yeah, we're talking like <laughs> quantum leap stuff. <laughs> Wait, you know things at the you know microscopic, beyond microscopic life and things, everything that's made out of atoms, all that stuff. And there's also like antimatter, and with physics you get the action. For every action, there's a reaction. And you get all this stuff. And so in classic, like, science fiction, horror fashion, he decides that, like, I'm going to tackle religion from a scientific standpoint. And we're going to make a horror movie about it. As Dan was saying, it's kind of very much inspired by the the writings of Nigel Neal, which we're talking about, you know, like early science fiction uh, films and stuff. He loves the, the Carpenter loves the Quatermass movies and uh, Quatermass and the pit specifically is a, is a story that kind of tries to give a scientific, a scientific explanation for the mythology or religion of the devil, like the image of the devil. And uh, it's very much what Carpenter's kind of doing in this movie in his own way, 
but he was pulling from a lot of resources. Like uh, there's a book called Timescape by Gregory Benford, uh, which is about a group of scientists from the 90s sending a message back in time to the scientists of the 60s to say, like, look, there's mm. going to be like this, which is unfortunately <laughs> very uh, fortuitous. There's going to be this economical, uh, ecological disaster. You got to you gotta start changing. The, you got to start saving the environment in the 60s or shit's going to be fucked up in the 90s. But this idea of scientists sending a message back as a kind of a warning is something that he kind of lifts for Prince of Darkness. He's also lifts from French filmmaker Jean Cocteau, the idea of like the mirrors being a passageway from, you know, he, which is very much in Orpheus and some of it's even in um, his shorter, Cocteau's shorter film, Blood of a Poet, the idea of traveling through mirrors. And it's all set around this very Howard Hawksian, <laughs> you know, Howard Hawks style, like group of professionals working to do something strong female characters you know uh the lead character the lead male is very there's a little bit of chauvinist attitude to it very old style um so he kind of mustache <laughs> he's got a sick mustache um, six dash and so he, he kind of decides that he's going to make this wacky science fiction horror movie pulling from all these influences and it's my understanding that, like, from the, I, and I don't know if this is true. I was reading this in an old cinema fantastique leading up to this, but I feel like it said that from the minute, like, he finished that, the script, within seven weeks, they were shooting it. Well, I find it interesting, too. It's something I did when we were, we were shooting your gene, junior film, which was the um, homage to the silent Buster Keaton movie eras, the um, Day at the Driving Range troop of actors that you got for that we had such a good time with all them that i was standing there while we were shooting your movie and i was like you know what'll be easy for me to do is just to write a movie for my senior film next year and write all these guys parts you know and that's kind of you know he steals that idea from me (laughs) (laughs) 20 years before and it or not 20 years but yeah maybe 15 and uh i you know that's another thing he i think he does great you know he's like you you talked about him doing a low budget movie or keeping something down keeping it kind of in one location as well and then he kind of writes some of these parts for guys he's probably he's worked with prior you know pleasance and um victor wong and maybe um i don't say dominic dunn but dominic dennis. dunn's the writer <laughs> dennis dunn. dennis dunn yeah you know so he's he's throwing people and the other gentleman who's in big trouble in little china too you know he's throwing people in spe- specific parts or he's making roles for people he know you know it'll play and that's another great way of doing something fun that you know you're going to have people you trust and you're familiar with, and that gets it done quicker. And, you know, that certainly helps keep uh, everything cost down and um, keeping the ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the other impetuses of, like, why he wanted to do like, an ensemble movie with like this was that despite his issues with big, making Big Trouble in Little China with the with the studio – he loved working with some of the actors. So I think he just wanted to work with like Victor Wong and Dennis Dunn in an environment that was maybe a little more pleasant for him. And um, so he brings them back. Of course, we get Pleasance, you know, famed Carpenter troupe. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if, if he if he had 
did like an A star casting of all his prior people in this movie, where you have like Keith David, or you have Kurt Russell, you know, all these guys coming back playing. You can you can almost fill out, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau. You can kind of fill out where these people would fall, even like um, what's his name, uh, bu- 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 um. You know, from Creepshow and uh, The Fog. Um, oh, the, Tom Mark Atkins. Twain. Not Tom Atkins. What's his name? Mark Twain. Um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, Hal uh, Holbrook. Hal Holbrook thrown in there. You know, it's like you could kind of see where all these guys would land, you know, to a certain extent. You know, uh, even what's-his-face, uh, who's um, who, who was in uh, Escape from New York and um, Assault on Precinct 13, you know, that... Uh, what's his um uh you know his name, oh but, yeah oh, yeah his name escapes my name yeah he did like Some, a couple years ago recently it's hill something house or something hill you know my my mind's failing me but like you you know he would be he may be playing like the uh alice cooper part you know it's like you know <laughs> so but it's just a, and it's you know for not the failings or anything but it's it's to me, it doesn't reek of a low-budget movie, and that's probably why, because it's an established guy doing it, and he's got money, and he knows what he's doing, and I, you know, it's not a thing. It's not a movie that suffers from it being a one or two location kind of a movie. You know, and there's nothing that the trappings of it never really, uh, the production of it really never reeks of anything. You know, oh well, they they couldn't do this, so they had to do that or something. You know, he's really able to write something that he's able to then accomplish on the budget, you know, with Alan Howarth composing everything, like everything kind of fits within the form of Carpenter, which really works. It doesn't really have any kind of um, negatives in the sense of, you know, even people reading, you know, the the write-ups on this before we did the podcast, like the negatives of this movie, people like, ah, it's just a B movie. I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? It's like, it's, 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 well, I'm, you know, I mean, critics just annoy the hell out of me, but it's like, you know, there's so many elements here that are, yeah, you could say this was lifted from here or this is an homage to this, but it's like, it's still presenting a pretty unique original idea in a certain sense. And, you know, much like, you know, uh, <clears throat> certain movies fall back to homages of, say, sci- sci-fi 50s, like this is what it's doing here. You know, um, Nigel Neal is not someone I knew really that much about until the past 15, 20 years. And, you know, it's like... So because of that, I would assume the large swath of a, of of an audience that's our age may not necessarily know who he is either. Yeah. Uh particularly if you're not British. And um you know, you're 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 opening someone up to an idea they may not have heard of and then they'd be like, "Oh, that's an idea from the Quartermass or the Stone Tapes or whatever, you know, whatever." So it's like all these elements that are pulled in, I think he does an expert job in keeping everything in the pot and putting that pot to boil and, you know, letting it go quick. And another thing too is the, uh, you know, the economy of time, you know, it's, there's not, it doesn't really lag. It's gets going really quick. You know, it's, it's what it maybe an hour under an hour and 40 minutes, you know, it's not, it doesn't move too quick for me, but it doesn't move too slow either. It's just why. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you kind of touched on a bunch of things there that I think are worth, uh, talking about. I think, you know, Throwing so, all my cards on the table, you know, we, one of the main uh, inspirations for doing this show, and I can see a lot of film podcasts, is nostalgia. And we've talked about how, like, you know, it's not necessarily uh, unique to our generation. You know, when we talked, when we did Greece, we talked about how things like Happy Days in Greece were born out of the nostalgia that those people had for 
their childhoods and their teens. That's something we might have even touched on in Monster Squad as well with all the, you know, you know. Monster Squad, I'm sure we talked about it with The Blob, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, sure. Creep Show, you know, like. So, you know, there was, there was no coincidence that, you know, you get remakes of The Thing, uh, The Blob, The Fly. Uh, Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars. You get a uh, creep show, which is kind of a comic book throwback to, you know, 50s and 60s comics. And, you know, all these guys were nostalgic for their childhoods and the things they loved. And so... Carpenter himself, it doesn't seem like a hugely sentimental guy, but he's certainly, I think, as much of a trailblazer as he is with something like Big Trouble in Little China, which is, even though he didn't write it, totally ahead of its time with, you know, what we know now in a in a post-Crouching Tiger Matrix <laughs> universe. You know, Carpenter was kind of laying, laying the groundwork in, Amer- in, for, in Hollywood cinema for that kind of martial art movie. But even that was kind of a an homage to the his love for 70s kung fu movies, you know, you know, yeah. the, the 10 years ahead uh, you know, before that. But he's also, you know, a guy who saw a 3D movie as a kid, a 3D science fiction movie and when like a spaceship crashed or a meteor or something came flying out of the screen, he got so scared that he got up and ran to the back of the theater because he thought he was going to, the thing was going to hit him and then realized that it wasn't and that it was movie was like, I want to do this. You know, <laughs> like it was a science fiction movie that inspired him to want to make movies as a kid. And so, yes, is it, does it pull elements from things? Uh, sure. Nigel Neal is a, an extraordinarily interesting science fiction film and television writer. But I will say that Carpenter does something kind of not totally unique, but certainly wraps all these ideas up in a very unique package with Prince of Darkness and ends up making not only his weirdest movie, I think his scariest movie. And I have a theory about Prince of Darkness in that I think it's one of his most personal movies. Maybe for the reasons that we've already talked about, the nostalgic reasons. But if you look at things like Halloween, most of his movies leading up to this were not like personal projects. Like he was a work for hire. It was all work for hire for him. Like he was hired to make a movie about babysitter murders when he made Halloween. It wasn't like he was like, hey, I got this great idea. I have babysitter murders. <laughs> you know, uh, Erwin Yablantz said, I need a, I want a movie about babysitter murders. And we're going to call it Halloween. And so he was hired to do that. Uh, the Thing is a remake. Christine is an adaptation of a of a Stephen King book, and he didn't write that. Adaptation. He didn't write the script for it. Starman, he didn't write. Big Trouble in China, he didn't write. Even They Live is an adaptation of a, of a story. Um, hmm. He didn't write In the Mouth of Madness. Sure, he makes them John Carpenter stories and makes them John Carpenter movies. But he decides, of all the movies that he could write and make in 1986 to be made in 1987, that he's going to make this movie. (laughs) You know, like, he writes it. He's credited in the credits as Martin Quatermass as as the writer. But I feel like... um, He did that already, though, with another... What what was it? They Live? He, he, He had another pseudonym? 
He might have, and also it might have been the Salt of Prey. There's something that he's credited as John T. Chance, which is John Wayne's yeah. character from Rio Bravo. And I feel like because he feels like Assault of Precinct 13 is so much influenced by Rio Bravo, it might have been that movie. So I, I just feel like he could have made anything. He kind of had the green light to make anything he wanted on a, on a moderate budget. And he chose this story. So I feel like this story must mean something to him in, in some way, even if it's just for nostalgic reasons. Uh, there's a couple of things that I feel like are worth going into. Some of them are the carp, what I call carpenterisms, which Dion kind of touched on a little bit. But I think it's worth with this movie. No, they live. He was Frank uh, Armitage. Oh yeah, he he. That was, was his pseudonym for they live as well. Frank Gorshin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frank Gorshin. Harvey Keitel. <laughs> Uh, it's a confusing movie. This movie is certainly probably his most confusing movie. Really, you think it's in a sense, I mean, aside from the, not hocus pocus, but the uh, certainly scientifically based quantum mechanics, which they kind of set up for us enough to know what, I mean, how do you f find it to be confusing in a sense of? Um... Well, I think like we talked about when we did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 movie, which is a remake, this 1978 remake, which is another example of a science fiction remake in the late 70s to 80s, which is a movie that Dion and I both have huge passion for. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978, is a hugely dense movie. You know, when Dion and I talked about it, we kind of agreed that there's like no wasted shot. Like every, there's things in the background going on. Like, it is a layered movie. and Yeah, everything it, seems on purpose in that movie. It's not, yeah, it's it's deliberate. That movie is yeah. absolutely deliberate. <laughs> as well as the paranoia that that movie sets in from the first frame adds to that when they're running yeah. around on the street and you see people looking at the camera that only plays into the movie because you don't know if these people are pod people or whatever. So, it, yeah, it adds it all. But with that movie, that layeredness, that deliberate, Ness of that movie, I feel like you don't need to notice everything to follow it. But when you do start to notice it, it adds so much more to it. And it's made in a way that, like, even if you don't notice it, probably on some subconscious level, it's affecting how you're viewing the movie. It's like unsettling you. I think with Prince of Darkness, I think there are, there's maybe plot things that don't necessarily all line up you know, straight in a row. I also think that Carpenter does very little spoon feeding the audience. He expects the audience to just keep up. And I think this movie is hugely dense and deliberate, but I think the difference is some of that, like as an audience member, you need to pay attention when you're watching this movie to kind of understand everything that's happening. <laughs> you know, like I feel like it's, it's there. But if you if you kind of let your mind wander at the wrong moment, you're going to miss some important plot stuff that I don't think necessarily will ruin the movie, the experience for you. I don't think you necessarily need to understand everything that's happening. But I think that there's a lot going on and he doesn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time explaining it to you. So you you need to keep up to talk about like the like what's going on in the story. So pre-Cambrian. Earth, the Earth's earliest history, there's a supernova somewhere on the other side of the galaxy. And when we take up in this movie, 
the rays, the light rays of that supernova are just now in 1987 reaching Earth. We get fed this information at the beginning of the movie. It starts to, ha- you know, and cause like some kind of astronomical things. People are noticing that there's things going on with the sun. So this is an important piece of information we get fed right in the beginning. It, is it important? I don't know, but it's fed to us, so we have to believe. That. Well, it's like the it's like the satellite in coming back from Jupiter with freaking radiation on it. Doesn't matter that it's that it's correlating with the zombies coming back to life or recently dead, you know. And um, that's a fascinating aspect to think that I remember was told as a little boy that it's like you know the light, the stars you're seeing in, at night. They may not even be there anymore. It takes, say, 10,000 years for even the light to get to us. So, yeah. it, you know, that if this thing is finally hitting us, it could be unlocking a door or turning on a switch um, that's starting all these freaky events. Or like Maximum Overdrive from 86, where you have the comet go by and it puts that green shit around the war. And then suddenly all the trucks or anything automated starts coming alive, having sentient, you know. So, yeah. correlation, I don't know. You decide. <laughs> So we also are fed this information towards the beginning that there's this like sect of Catholic priests called the Brotherhood of Sleep that have been watching, protecting, guarding, whatever. They've, been, they've hidden this canister of green ooze for centuries. Much like the guys from Last Crusade. It's like the Brotherhood of the other sect <laughs> that are watching the Grail. Remember? It's like those are those yeah. guys. Like the you know, when they go to their con- Yeah, when they go to their conventions in the fall and at Christmas time, all these people intermingle. Oh, you had to stay in it too because your father made you <laughs> didn't raise and so do I. The Brotherhood of Sleep fall asleep all the time. And somehow they bring this canister over to the uh, to the uh, Americas. Uh, and bury it in the basement of this church in the 1500s. Yeah, made by Spanish, the Spanish. That yeah. then Alley would sprout up around. <laughs> around yeah, it. who knew, right? Because it was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we also eventually learned that whoever's in proximity of the canister uh, share a dream from the future. Uh, the Brotherhood of Sleep also shared this dream. But we don't know who's sending the dream and what it is. Is it a warning? We don't know. Do we ever know? You, Carpenter you decide. <laughs> yeah. Does it, is it a warning about what's going to happen? Or is it the dream that causes what's happening to happen? Ultimately, we don't know. Uh, we get fed from some ancient book that uh, the anti-god seals his son in this canister millions of years ago. The yin of the yang, going back to the quantum mechanics, antimatter, matter versus antimatter, our god verse then has the opposite, the mirror image, which is the anti-god. Yes, so we get god, reaction, anti-god, or vice versa. Yeah. Because we learned that the anti-god seals his son in this canister millions of years ago, kind of stating that the son of the anti-God came before Jesus, who was in the context of this story and many religions, the son of God. So in this instance, the son of the anti-God comes before the son of God. And in this story too, the, the it is alluded to in this holy ancient book that God and Jesus were well aware of all this because isn't Jesus comes down 
to try to be a harbinger of what's happening and then people don't believe them, so to speak, or, you know, so another aspect of this is they know back then that they have to sit on this and put it, you know, like you put a, um, what do you call those? Oh, when you, when, you know, your time your elementary school puts, yeah, thank you. They, they have to put this time capsule in, in the ground until the human's technology is able then to support all the stuff they already know scientifically or, I don't know, uh, intellectually to back up everything that they already know as fact. So, yeah. So what Dion's talking about is we also get fed this information that Christ, who is of extra test, extra testicle, extraterrestrial. Extra testicle. <laughs> He's got extra testicle. Jesus. Extraterrestrial origin. Who, who is extraterrestrial comes to Earth to warn mankind of what's in the canister. I don't know if you guys know, but somebody just dropped this stuff off, and I gotta tell you, you guys gotta watch out. But we also learned that his following grew too big, and they, in quotes, because we never learned out who, we don't learn who they are, killed him because of it. Yeah, it's not the apostles, yeah. So his followers, and Christ embarks this information, and his followers decide to hide the canister until science has advanced enough that can explain what's going on with the canister to the masses so that the so that the masses will be able to believe what's happening their assertion in this then is that our modern day understanding of religion and specifically christianity catholicism is based is formed that's the revelation pleasance has as a priest yeah that and why all he... this is kind of yeah, he given has, to us. He has his own like extra, extra existential <laughs> crisis, crisis of uh, yeah. crisis of faith because he realized like, you know, like w- what have I dedicated my life to here? I mean, so at its core, these are this is what's going on with the canister. Also worth noting that the canister has a lock that you could only open from the inside. Lovely. So, I don't know who planned that one? <laughs> So clearly, seemed like a good idea at the time. The devil was well, the anti-god. Yeah, aka the devil. Or it wasn't whatever you like want to call him. he put his son in there as punishment. His punishment was like, you go sit in here, and when it's time, you open it. You open it that up, party pack, and you yeah. come out. Whereas in like say Queer Mass in the Pit, we learn that the mythology of the devil comes from the fact that like Martians came to Earth because they ruined their planet, so they came to Earth and. They end up altering early man to be able to to hold their like uh per, you know their thoughts and stuff, and that's why we get like bad people. You know, that's why like violence and and shittiness is introduced into into mankind because of this in, in Crater Master Pet. And we learned that the that in silhouette the Martians look like the devil. They look like they have horns and stuff. And that's where like we get the idea of it's explaining that that's where like religion gets the idea of the devil is from like these Martians that came and fucked shit up in, in earth. Unlike that Carpenter goes in like a completely different direction and says like, okay, we're dealing in science. We have antimatter and matter and we have the anti-God. We have God. What is it? What are we going to make it? Like, what's it going to look like? And he decides, like, a vial of, like, a giant vial of liquid, <laughs> a swirling, 
secret of the ooze. What do you make? What do you make of that, Dion? What do you? How do you feel about uh, the fact that he decides that the son of the anti god, the antichrist, let's say, is of that of um, Shredder's <laughs> ooze or David Warner's <laughs> ooze? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an ingenious idea, and it's it's uh, very elaborate. And I do like the idea that you get at the beginning of this that you have the um, analytical mind of um, Victor Wong, who's the professor at the college. And then you have the theologian, you know, uh, Donald Pleasance is the priest. They have a past relationship. They've debated each other on TV. So they are almost adversaries on some sort of intellectual level of, you know, maybe they're debating science versus religion and all that. And that ple- that's the first person Pleasance thinks of that he needs help and you know when he goes and pleads for help i love the idea that they're coming together like listen you know we may get along we may not get along but you need to help me you know i I found some stuff in the basement and when they go down there you have this thing sitting there and this could potentially fuck some shit up (laughs) you know and uh it's a lot of the freaky connotations of that that you know that it can only be opened in the inside so it's like a time lock you know when something uh is right in the world and maybe these cosmic rays or whatever and then immediately when uh pleasance first brings wong down there they are you know wong never kind of refutes he's one of the only people in the group who supposedly the you know he's the elder he's the one teaching everybody the most learned man of the situation from the intellectual collegiate level immediately ascertains or is verified with himself. Yes, I can feel the present. This shit is serious. You know, there's never a doubt. It's almost like Doc, um, what's his, Wilford Brimley in The Thing. He knows from the beginning this is, this is serious, and I'm taking this seriously. And that's when he brings everyone in, his students who are going for the PhDs and stuff like that, who all go through their little existential crisis or their little not taking it seriously, making, you know, uh, crude jokes or whatever, or people who are not religious or people who are religious and they have to bring everybody together. So in the course of this, you know, t- insane 18 hours of sleeping over this church, have to go through this immediate crises of personally, physically, as in the world may potentially end. You can't just go home and go to sleep because you're, you're just running away from whatever this is happening. So it sets up your classic uh, clock, you know, yeah. in a sense. And uh, I think that's a great setup for in the first, what, this is 10, 15 minutes, you, you get all this laid out at you when the ball starts going down the hill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, aside from like what I think is a brilliant 11 minute credit sequence at the beginning of the movie. All with that beautiful Carpenter font that, you know, Quentin Tarantino has his own font. You know, Carpenter has his own font. Yeah. So you immediately know this is a Carpenter movie. Aside from him, you know, his first name is coming up as Carpenter. John yeah, Carpenter, yeah. Prince of Darkness. But yeah, we start to we start to see like uh, short clips of his class that he's teaching, and it's certainly obviously some kind of like theoretical physics, and he's kind of a lot of what he's doing is questioning like, okay, like what's reality? Like you know, basically he's saying like this uh, is reality. Yeah, like it, it's well, it becomes something that we explore more in in the mouth of madness but this idea of like he says common sense uh, breaks down at the molecular level like the interesting thing about it is that it makes clear that even with science so much of it is speculation and theory like there's so much that man doesn't really know you know he's talking about like linear time and all these things and then the girl the uh Lisa Blunt character uh Catherine she's 
trying to explain like it's like schrodinger's cat like it's both a dead and alive at the same time until we open the box that we know for sure like it's all this theoretical stuff that is obviously carpenter finds fascinating and i have to admit like i do too um it's something that like i said even though he didn't write in the mouth of madness like he explores more in the in the mouth of madness like what's reality like reality is what the majority of people say it is you know what but what happens you know in, in the mouth of madness the question is, styles opposes the question to trent like but what happens when the crazy people become the majority like then that like i am legend like their reality now becomes reality which I think is a good segue into like the quote unquote carpenterisms that Dion was kind of like pointed. Like there's a lot of carpenter hallmarks in this movie. And I always used to say that in the mouth of badness was carpenter's greatest hits, you know, like carpenter was taking all the cool from the thing with the tentacles under the door with the old woman to all kinds of like, he was like the culmination of like all the cool shit in carpenter movies. But he kind of starts doing that here too. Dion mentions, it, it's a siege movie. Like it's people in a location. We have the homeless people outside that never really spend too much time trying to get in, but they're out there. And the siege is also coming from the inside with like the people that are infected on the inside, trying to get the people that are infected. Of course, this have you see this in assault of precinct 13, the fog ghost of Mars, the thing to a certain extent, group of professionals working together, which I brought up earlier. We see that in the thing bunch of carpenter movies that's very much uh howard hawks thing that he likes to do that real bravo kind of idea we get the supernatural and the extraterrestrial even a bit of like body snatching going on which we see in the thing uh, a very important one which i think is clearly something that carpenter likes to play with is the idea of a dormant evil something from the past that can't be destroyed we see that from everything from like michael myers He's a kid when he kills his sister, takes a lot of time. That evil is dormant until like Halloween 1978 or whatever. And then he, it comes back to life. Which is alluded to in the novelization as well, which we got into. But like, yeah, yeah, the yeah, novelization yeah. You know, kind of gives a little more backstory of that. It's a much older evil. The fog, you know, the Blake's crew and the fog that's, it's dormant until like the centennial or whatever. The thing, the alien is frozen in ice until he's thawed out. Even Christine is a car from the 50s. <laughs> right off the assembly line with an evil, yeah. And in the Mouth of Madness, of course, we have the evil is being held at bay through the works of Sutter Kane. The supernova that we talked about is a, a, a device that, like in Assault at Precinct 13, I don't know if you remember, there's all this talk on the radio and stuff of like, there's sunspots. <laughs> you know, like there's all this talk of like, some kind of astronaut, there's sunspots that are causing things to be weird in Assault on Precinct 13. So the supernova is kind of a little bit of a, a play on that. And the first shot we get in this movie is the full moon, you know, the cycle of the moon. And then you have those shots, which I don't know, astrology that far enough to know if is, is the earth and the sun or the moon and the sun able to align in that way. You know, I thought usually you get an eclipse right yeah it, it seems like there's some kind of eclipse happening that is not expected but maybe we're off kilter because i would think that if if that would happen we would get a proper eclipse solar or a, a lunar maybe we're off our axis a bit because then the moon is slightly higher than the earth, sun yeah you know you're getting like the tatooine thing going on <laughs> you know yeah you know we have a great line by kurt russell in the thing where he's he's talking can't remember if he's talking. Is he talking to one of the doctors 
or is it when he's recording something for himself? But he says this some at some point, Kurt Russell says, trust is a hard thing to come by these days. Yeah. In this movie, Jameson Parker's character, Brian, says to, I think, Victor Wong's character that faith is a tough thing to come by these days, which is kind of a direct, you know, homage to that line. Um, we talked about the reality stuff of In the Mouth of Madness. And of course, we get the uncertain dark ending, which is kind of a patented uh, John Carpenter thing. A John Carpenter movie, especially, even his action movies, but especially his horror movies, not only end uncertain, but end with the question or the fear that the evil is not gone. You know, at the, Very at the end, we have the character of Brian having the dream. But we don't know. Is it a dream or is it the transmission? Is it a new transmission where we see uh, the Lisa Blunt character in the dream now? And we also don't know at the end of the day, did they cause all this or did they stop it? And we also don't know the character of Catherine in the dream at the end, if it's a transmission. Is she coming out of the church because she's safe and they and they stopped it? Or is she coming out of the church that she's now the anti-God or the son, or the son of the anti-God? Like, we don't know what that transmission really means at the end. Like, Yeah, is it a warning or is it telling everything's okay? Yeah. And to piggyback off you said, too, is that, you know, Carpenter hits this, I think, arguably, maybe, when there is starting to have a decline in religion, too. So that, you know, um, certainly you see that nowadays where people aren't as religious, certainly, as when we were growing up. Yeah. So that is something that, you know, having these existential issues that Pleasance is going through and then certainly a lot of the more uh, linear thinking individuals in the movie the 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 learned men the scientists in the group are having you know this crisis they don't they either don't have a religious space some of them do um some of them are questioning it some have a very centered faith you know and that's something that you'd start seeing as well in 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 the country or in the world at that point for at least the western culture yeah yeah. I also just think not only is it, is it a culmination of Carpenter's greatest hits, kind of, of like things in Carpenter's. We even get that shot where he's in class, the Brian character is in class, and then he looks out the door and sees the limo pull up and the and the priest come out. Like that shot is almost a direct pull from Halloween when we see Jamie Lee Curtis in class and she looks out the window. She's like kind of daydreaming and she looks out the window and I think she sees like Michael Myers across the street or like the station wagon or the station wagon. Like it's almost the same exact framing of, of that shot. But not only is it kind of like this thing pulling from all past Carpenter movies, but it's also kind of like the ultimate horror film in a lot of ways. Like, cause it's about Satan or the devil and it's, and it's in a, it might be in a scientific way, but it's just about that. There's possession. The woman who ends up kind of becoming the son of, uh, you know, gets, you know, she gets, their belly gets full and her skin starts to decay. She even has like a little bit of the mark of the beast on her. We get uh, essentially zombies for, for like lack of a better term. They might not be the walking dead, but they're certainly um, zombie type characters. Like the thing, we get the fear of loss of identity when they get kind of taken over. We see this kind of most prominent with the uh, the character of Calder, the black guy. That's a guy who's like, Really struggling with it. <laughs> yeah, he's singing "Amazing." Gr- or he's singing uh, "Swing Low, Sweet Cherry," ain't he? <laughs> no, it might be. Or is it he might singing be, "Amazing uh, Grace"? Is it "Amazing Grace"? Yeah, it might be "Amazing Grace." 
But he's certainly a guy who's not dealing well with it. Like he's losing himself. One of my the scariest moments in In the Mouth of Madness is when uh for me is when Styles goes to Trent, like, I'm losing my I'm losing me, Trent, or whatever. He's had a tough time. He's losing himself to this. And you can tell that he is distraught by it. <laughs> like, yeah. Like he's fighting it. Even to the end, he's like looking in the mirror and he's laughing, but he's got like sad eyes. It's a great, fantastic performance by this guy. We got to give this guy, uh, the actor, a shout out because he delivers a hell of a performance. Jesse Lawrence Ferguson. He, he deserves MVP in my book. Yeah, he's the win <laughs> for that performance. You know, we get body horror, like the the woman who is ends up becoming kind of the son of the Antichrist. She her body's decaying, her skin oh, like with falling the ge- off. gestation period and getting the 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 thing in you, and then it's having that kind of uh, cycle inside, like some sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not infestation, but you know, some sort yeah. of um, yeah. You we, get it. You get that. Um, we even get kind of shades of a slasher movie. You know, we get Alice Cooper killing the guy with a bicycle. But then we also have when that, I think it's the homeless woman comes running with like. Yeah, the, it's all Argento right there. That yeah. homage to Argento in the, in the open square. You see square. that knife. Um, how, yeah. they, how I think they did that shot where there's that close up of the knife as she's running. As I think they just stood with the knife up and then they drove a truck with the brick pattern. The brick. Past. Very much like Terminator they did that with the alley. <laughs> Past the knife to make it look like that. And then we get like kind of, uh, you know, fears that aren't necessarily explored too often in horror movies. Like, you know, as someone who lives in Midtown Manhattan, you know, like there is a, look, there's a fear of the homeless um, and the mentally ill. And we get that here. LA is very much that way too. The home, homelessness or what are they, they don't call it homelessness anymore. It's like, houseless or something you know like i forget what the new term for it is you know it's a it's unfortunately a, a, an issue especially in in big cities but um i think reason why the homeless become a thing in this movie uh ties into like what i think is the scariest part of this movie which is it's it's talking about how man is small in the co- in the cosmos you know like because we're talking about like things at the subatomic level, like it's also talking about how in the grand scheme of things with like this supernova that's happening on the other side of the world, man is very small and man doesn't know really much of anything. And we see the insects. I mean, I think that's a comparison. Like he's comparing us to insects a lot in this movie with all these um, shots of the insects. But I think what is meant by that is like the canister, whatever's in the canister can in some way control lower brain function. Yeah. And so it's affecting the insects, but it's also affecting the homeless people who many of which have like kind of mental illness. And so that's why like they're kind of more easily affected. Susceptible to this. Yeah, yeah. Susceptible to what's going on there. At least in the context of this movie with the people around the church. And we get like the fear of the unknown. I mean, ultimately that's what this movie is about like they don't we learned through this movie that man doesn't know shit you know like i said even like all the idea of like theoretical theoretical physics everything that we even in the context of this movie that we're thinking of as science the leading edge on the cusp of you know theoretical stuff is so is also just theory at the end of the day yeah and (laughs) then she's talking about getting stuff when she's translating the mathematician or whatever lack of a better term she is she's seeing the readouts coming out of stuff 
that she doesn't understand or the other guy says like you know we they hadn't even developed that yet and he's like she's like i know duh yeah. you know and it's like you know and then she's seeing stuff she doesn't even understand yet computations and and kind of formulas and stuff you know so it's even ahead of our perception of knowledge which goes back to the idea of them laying this time capsule in the ground for us to be able to better have a idea for it to come out and reveal itself to the masses um when the human collective conscience is i guess one able to grasp it on a certain intellectual level as well as maybe able to grasp it on a way to combat it which we clearly you know that that time lock starts opening before that bus leaves the station before we're able to figure out what's going on you know the cosmic trigger goes off the alarm clock and uh it's scary how quick it happens and you know that's another thing of how fast-paced the movie happens because as soon as they get there they don't have any kind of real time almost like you see in like a poltergeist or something movie where it's like as soon as you get there shit's going down and you're trying to play catch up and try to figure out what's going on but at the same time you know it's not going to wait for you you know and uh it's going to do its its full cycle with you or without you which is kind of freaky and they're they're trying to play catch up in a sense of figuring out what's happening but then it's already kind of started you know yeah i would also say you know something that we do frequently on this show is you know we also like to look at a movie in the context of when it was made of all the movies we mentioned especially horror movies uh, sure, we get like Hellraiser, which is a very unique idea, but it's also at the end of the day kind of like a weird slasher movie, you know. But we're getting, I don't know what, by the late 80s, we're still, we that same year we get Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I don't know what number Friday the 13th we're on <laughs> by 1987. 87, uh, we're on, I think, uh, seven, because I think 86 is part six. So we might be getting, you know, not Jason Lives is 86. So I forget the new blood, the one with psychic phenomenon. Yeah. He's coming out of the water and the psychic is cueing him kind of. And they have this, you know, and he's looking badass as ever kind of a certain, you know, to the degree. The next year in 88, I think we get Halloween four. We're still very much in the throes of slasher movies when it comes to horror uh, in 87. And Carpenter does something that in some ways is even though it has a couple of scenes that are shades of horror movies, it's very much kind of like the anti-slasher movie in a lot of ways. But also in 1987, I don't think that we can ignore the fact that the evil is passed through fluids and basically ejaculation in a time which is at the height of basically the AIDS scare in the 80s. I mean, people talk about the thing because of all the stuff with the blood being kind of a an analogy or whatever, a metaphor for um, AIDS. But really the thing comes out before the huge AIDS scare kind of happens. Whereas Prince of Darkness comes out kind of like really at the, at the height of it. Well, it's, yeah, the, the masses or no, it's not just a problem in the certain communities or maybe it was in the thing. This is now it's on the front page of the papers and stuff. And people are very scared. Yeah. I think by 87, we have the Ryan White thing happen. Yeah, because he passes away in 1990, yeah. Who was a young boy who uh, who uh, I think was a hemophiliac and had, for some reason, needed a blood transfusion and got HIV and AIDS through a blood transfusion and, and was a huge part of bringing awareness to the fact that um, really anybody could, could get it. But yeah, I mean, basically it's passed through you know, super soaker ejaculations <laughs> yeah. uh, in the movie. And 
I, I don't know if this kind of stuff is was on Carpenter's mind when he wrote these scenes, but it's passed mostly through same-sex encounters in the movie. Um, it's a lot of girl-on-girl -girl action. Even the one time when it's passed from a female to a male in a, in a heterosexual way, it's interracial, which is also kind of taboo. Plus, it's a little kinky because there's a third person there. It's kind of a... And it's a kiss, too. It's a little more romantic. Yeah, it's, it's a, little a little more, more sensual. More, yeah. And um, the one kind of like fluid transfer that is referred to in the movie that's not dangerous is the kind of the the love scene that we don't, the sex scene that we don't see, which is a heterosexual relationship. I don't know if that kind of stuff is on Carpenter's mind, but um, it's certainly things that, uh, you know, movie and, and theory people, uh, nerds like us, will look at. And there's also this theory out there. I Again, I don't necessarily think this was what Carpenter was going for, but uh, there's this kind of look at, like, is the, is the Dennis Dunn character of Walter, is he gay? You know, he gets, uh, it's not important to the plot. And like I said, I don't know if Carpenter even thought about it, but there's, people have pointed out that um, he says that he, you know, he broke out in hives at the age of 12 from homosexual panic. Uh, Brian busts his chops when he says, I, you know, I can't be here all weekend. I have a date with a beautiful trial attorney. And Brian says, so well, yeah, well, like, where are you taking him? Yeah. And at the end of the day, when Walter is trapped in the movie, where is he trapped? In the closet. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Walter is literally trapped in the closet in this movie. Very and, uncomfortable with the females there, too. And, he, uh, and his escape is very much wants to escape having some kind of fluid exchange with women uh, in this movie. So is this something that Carpenter did intentionally? I don't know, but it is something that gets brought up um, when you start digging into the the movie in kind of a in a research kind of way and uh there's just so, i mean there's so much we could continue to talk about i think the canister is kind of brilliant as a device i think it was a way of avoiding like disappointing the audience because i feel like like what can you do to make it look something that's like going to live up to whatever you know I guess Tim Curry's character in Legend lives up to like what, like an awesome, like devil looking character. <laughs> but I think it was a way of avoiding, like, let's just not show what it is. It's, it's a, you know, like we can't disappoint the audience in terms of like what the devil looks like if we never really show the devil. But it also something that I, I only noticed on recent viewings is like there's this talk about like there's something like gestating in it. It's like, this idea of like ambiotic fluid. Brian says like there's something growing in there, you know, which I think consciousness is, or which is yeah. interesting that I never really picked up on until recently. And how they even present the canister. It's not like the Ark of the Covenant where it's a box or something. Yeah. It's more of a something you could see and you can see that whatever's inside of it is moving on its own volition for whatever reason, you know, where it's circulating and doing some scary stuff as opposed to just stagnant sitting there. It's much more ominous and scary to have this green liquid or whatever it is swirling inside like a whirlpool as opposed to just uh you know a gold box on a wall or a chest that you can't see the, you know the evil you see the evil right in front of you or whatever it is you know and that makes it much more unsettling i think for the viewer and jesus if you're there <laughs> you, know, you know yeah and that it's escape, you know. Then it's defying the laws of gravity. How it's escaping, it's coming out and going to the top and making the pools on top, which they don't notice. And 
and uh it's squirting and stuff and it's all very uh it's all very freaky that it's doing you know and then like you said the the you know the otherworldly stuff of going through the mirror and all and then the idea of that's the portal kind of you know bringing at the end when you see the hand come out it looks like a certainly looks like a devil hand a demon hand a very insidious kind of uh aspect to it all playing on that theme of the opposite you know you see yourself in the mirror and then you know the interdimensional stuff you know you know there are there other realities that we don't know about yet or other kind of things and that could be issues that we don't even understand or kind of can quantify at this time yeah how do you feel about the um not just like kind of the the postscript but like the ending in general like, well, uh, I feel that's, it's very, you know, the whole found footage, well, they call it found footage or whatever the VHS um, dreams they're having certainly wasn't something that was, you know, you'd seen that before in Hannibal, a cannibal Holocaust and stuff like that. So you had the idea of a found footage kind of a film and you don't necessarily, they're not something they're finding, but this transmission that's being sent to them. And then it's on VHS, the other format of the day. Um, you know, when we were used to film in theaters and stuff for the most part, that's very scary in that the revelation that everyone's having the same dream or the same vision. And every time you're getting a little more of what they're saying and when it's coming from 1999, you know, 10 years or 12 years ahead of the movies taking place. And then the final reveal where you get the whole thing kind of it's in, in its entirety unmolested where you see, and then you have her coming out. And I mean, I took it as that she became, because since she went over there into that world and then the mirror was cracked and it's almost like Pleasance coming to a resolution with his existential uh, crisis, he kind of is reaffirmed or affirmed in his beliefs. Like, okay, I went to my, the Bible for help. And then I finally understood what I, you know, I found the ax and it's serendipitous and I'm able to destroy it. And then she gets trapped in there when she pushes the, um, the entity, the possessed entity in there that at the end, I don't know if it's changed. I mean, you may, you brought up a good point. Is she the Christ-like figure coming out saying everything's okay, but um, you know, prior to those, the, the, the vision the, the, we were seeing looked more very like the foggish kind of an, of an entity. So with her, then it becomes clear when she steps out, it goes from the fog to her kind of an entity. So I got the interpretation myself that maybe she has become the vessel of the, um, the doom and, um, you know, maybe she is now going to be the edifice that brings the end or whatever. But at the same time, maybe it could be that everything's okay. But I didn't get the everything's okay. Yeah, it doesn't certainly doesn't feel that way. But at the end of the no, day... No, you don't really... have John Carpenter running out there being like, it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. It's all been approved, you know. So it, it, it makes it a little more ominous leaving you with that, like, yeah, it hasn't been fixed and... Uh, you know, even the first world problems of the situation, which I think somebody pointed out when I was reading up on it, like, you know, you have that great shot when the sun comes up, the pickup truck driving by on the street in the morning hours. So it's like there's this whole, you know, fight for good and evil in the whole world as we know it. And people are still going about their day because they don't realize what's going on right outside, you know, right, you know, 50 yeah. feet away from them, you know, or and you see that in a lot, uh, uh, certainly assault on precinct 13 when people are going by and doing stuff they don't know. And I'm sure you see that in maybe the early stages of some of the dead films as well. So that's very scary as well, that people don't realize what's happening, you know, in the next apartment, next house or whatever over from you. So I don't know. What do you, how, what's your feeling of the 
of the postscript. Well, I mean, the postscript is, I think, interesting, and and uh, I mean, I agree. It's a, but I but there is the question: is like, is it re- is he having a dream? Is there some kind of like guilt ridden dream that he's having, or is it really? The transmission. But even like before that, I think generally speaking, this is Carpenter's ugliest looking movie. And I don't necessarily think it's for the fact that uh, Gary, this is Gary Kibbe's like first film as a DP. Uh, Carpenter had been working with Dean Cundy up to this point. And Gary Kibbe was a camera operator for a lot of great DPs. And then he shoots this movie. I don't think it's, it's because it's like a first time DP. I just think like, like the makeup is like gross and ugly with the with the woman though the building is you know i guess interesting looking the interiors are kind of like it's like all just like brown and beige like it's there's just something about it that's not aesthetically pleasing a lot of the time when it comes to the the photography um and the and i guess more importantly the mise en scène yeah. of, of the movie like what's going on within the frame but the standout shot is that when we see after the the woman basically sacrifices herself to save the world, and then we cut to like inside the mirror, and she's kind of like being pulled away from it in this liquid form, and it's such a gorgeous shot, and it's terrifying at the same time. No, not for a second does Donald Pleasant say like maybe we should try to help her. He just like, <laughs> yeah, he's like no, you know. <laughs> She sacrificed herself. <laughs> he, he crashes the mirror. He's like, fuck her. Yeah. <laughs> like, we like, had to do it. <laughs> but um, I just, I love that aspect of it. As you know, Dion, I'm a, I'm a huge Cocteau fan. So like the whole mirror stuff I find uh, really interesting in general. But I just, I love that shot. And it's also like kind of so, tra- I mean, obviously it's tragic. We lost one of our main characters. We lost many characters throughout the movie, but uh, the fact that she sacrifices herself. And she makes the decision, too, you know, where she's in the hallway. She's going to help her boyfriend, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, one who's you know, be sh- clearly struggling. Very you know, short lived relationship that is moving very fast, very quickly. Yeah. You know, and it gives you that idea. You know, it's like when Night of Living Dead, the guys again in the window, Cooper, help me, man. Like, hold the board <laughs> up, or do you go down to the basement, you know, or whatever, or do you sacrifice, do you save yourself? And this more, it's like, not even saving yourself. It's what do you do? Do you help the immediate problem of your boyfriend overpower the other guy, the zombie guy? Or do you you see what's, oh, shit, the portal of hell is opening over here. And I don't think her intention really even was to sacrifice herself. I think that's just how the momentum went, the physics of it, you know. <laughs> she tripped. She was thrown. <laughs> yeah, I, she just tripped over Pleasance. Pleasance like, whoa! <laughs> and then he's like, ah, I did it. It's fine, you know. I don't. I think she thought she was gonna. They were gonna pull her out, and you know. And I. And since I said this is the second viewing, I forgot that they shut it. Pleasance was like, "Whoop!" And I turned the light off really quick and I unplugged it. You know, we're done. You know, but that's at the same time. I can't fault him for that. You know, he's like, he wants. You know, you see, this is a portal to freaking whatever the heck. You know, it's you know, you gotta close that shit. But there is kind of like, if you're gonna look at it in terms of like some kind of lesson, though, it is there's some kind of like romantic. Uh, sentimental thing that I don't think you would expect from Carpenter in that, you know, if we look at it, you need science to diagnose the problem. Science is what tells us what what's going on, what the problem is. But at the end of the day, love and her humanity are what, kind of st- are what stopped it. You know, it wasn't science that stopped it at the end of the day. It was this woman who gave herself to the cause whether it was to save him, 
save everybody, save the world. This woman stepped up and because of whatever you want to call it, love or just like her humanity, she ends up saving the world. At least for now. <laughs> at least in that moment. And it's a little bit of, of you know, to the temporary sanity coming back to Pleasance, the restoration of his faith, I guess, yeah. to, to be able to have the, the wherewithal to realize Axe is there. I, this is my make my move as opposed to staying catatonic behind the boiler. And, yeah. um, you know, he wasn't certainly crushed to death. You could have had him just then been stuck and fucked and not been able to get out. If, if you know, you could have had that play out, then there was no way to have the door ple- theoretically closed unless somebody else broke the mirror. So you have a lot of things playing right in those few seconds, you know, and um, it's tragic and, you know, <laughs> at the same time as it is like, I guess, you know, the momentary lapse of, okay, it's ended, but is it for now or until someone turns the light back on? I think what, uh, you know, maybe as we wrap wrap up this discussion, you know, I think one thing I, I think is kind of funny to look at is, okay, so like you're hinting at like life go life is going on outside at, the, at, at all this, but what happens after this? One, somebody's going to explain that there's a bunch of like dead. Well, that's uh, what I thought. Dead right grad students. Like, <laughs> yeah. How do you explain all this to the cops? You know, in the first 48. Even That'd at be the end, great... like the homeless people just start to disperse. You yeah. know, like they, the homeless people go back to whatever their life is. They might not even know what the hell was going on. But then you have like one, you get all the dead people. But then you only have Walter. He just, I think he jumps out the window and just runs. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Pleasant's, his faith has been restored. He's kind of just. Maybe he's come to the conclusion that his faith and what's going on are not mutually exclusive. But he comes back and he's a hero of the church. A great shot, by the way, as a side, when Pleasant shows up at the at the church for the night, you know, when they're going to have the thing. It's like there's all these homeless people outside and he rolls up in a limousine. <laughs> I know. He's getting out. He's like, Hello. <laughs> Great, great touch. Yeah, the diocese uh, <laughs> has a limousine that they bring the nun to with, and then, you know, everybody's going, rolling deep. <laughs> uh, you know, in the midst of, like, all these homeless people. Um, but just like imagine, like, one, clearly, whether Brian's having a dream or he's experiencing the transmission, he's affected. Clearly, he had feelings for this woman, even though they only had dinner and coffee, like, once and had a, f- a fun night. He's ready. We assume that he's ready to per- like profess his love to her. She's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, slow your roll, man. <laughs> like, it was one one date. Relax. Yeah. Uh, but he's certainly riddled with guilt or whatever it is. Uh, Walter, who knows? You know, he, we just see him like, my point is like, I don't know how these people who know what happened go on. The, the fear that it's going to happen again that they're not going to be able to stop it. You know, like it's life altering this information that everything they learned in that night, like changes the course of history. (laughs) Well, I think um, I read too, that uh, Alice Cooper said, this is right for a sequel. And certainly you could have a movie where, you know, he's now trying to figure out a way to recreate that portal to get her back. You know, that could be a plot for a movie. And then, you know, if he's opening that, portal what's going to come back is he going to be able to save her or is she coming back with the inherent evil that she's seeped in or something so certainly i mean i would think if i was in that situation that would be what when i'm looking in the mirror i'm thinking about how can i help her you can't just be like ah fuck it it's like i lost the you know it's like you know you're certainly thinking what can i do to to try to save her 
Yeah. You know, maybe she's still all these ideas. Is she still out there? Is she still there? Is she still whatever? So yeah, it's, 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 it leaves a lot of questions. It certainly doesn't wrap things up in a sense. It leaves it. And again, I think it's one of the reviewers said too, it's like, you know, the best horror is stuff that kind of sticks with you. Yeah. And certainly this is one that when you walk out having all these kind of questions that on the way home from the movies, you're like, so what do you think happened, man? You know, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, like I said, it's an idea that's kind of out there, especially for Carpenter. And I think at the end of the day, when you really start to think about it, it's terrifying. Like, I think it's easily like his scariest movie. But, you know, fear is one of those things that's uh, subjective, I guess. You know, (laughs) it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. But for me, it's it's, this movie's terrifying. We get um, Peter Jason's first appearance in a Carpenter movie, and I believe he's been in every Carpenter movie since this movie. Uh, he plays the uh, Doctor Leahy. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember like what they're doing. They're researching. They're some other department. He, the department of like the guy with the mullet that dies outside, who's like, "This is Kaka," like whatever that department is. He's he's the head of that department. Um, he's the one that grabs the cookies and is doing the trumpet thing as he. As yeah. he walks out, Peter Jason ends up being in, you know, at least in some, whether it's a big part or a small part in every Carpenter movie after this, I believe. And of course, Alice Cooper makes it into the movie because it's produced by Shep Gordon, his manager. And the song that the the guy in the glasses who Alice Cooper kills is listening to on his Walkman is the song Prince of Darkness by Alice Cooper. Lisa Blunt, you know, I was watching... A uh, she plays Catherine. She's the redhead who uh, sacrifices herself at the end. I was watching um, the movie Dead and Buried, mm-hmm. which is written by I don't know if it's directed by, but it's written by Dan O'Banion, who Carpenter made Dark Star with at the USC. She's in that movie, and she's blonde. I remember seeing that movie, and I was like, that woman looks so familiar to me. <laughs> what is else is this woman in? And uh, so I looked it up while I was watching. I was like, oh, it's her. But she's blonde and has like a different haircut. So she wasn't like totally. That's a great movie. Totally recognizable. Yeah, I love that movie. Maybe maybe yeah, next time. And I have the novelization, which is thick as hell. So it's, <laughs> it looks, you know, unless it's based, it might be based off that. That it might be based off a novel. Yeah. And that's why it's so thick. But uh, yeah, Prince of Darkness, man. Yeah. And I would recommend anybody who hasn't heard or seen go check out those stone tapes. That's a great little. Those, um, I'm sure those it probably is on YouTube. Bootlegs. <laughs> those Rolling Stone tapes, you know, those bootlegs of them. Get your yayas out and all those that era live at Leeds. Uh, great era for the Stones. Um, but yeah, Stone tapes. I think is 72 or so, and it was huge when it came out in England because it was like considered one of the best horror. Um, English horror uh, things that maybe BBC's produced and stuff, and it begot a theory now called the Stone Tape Theory about kind of the similar kind of there's a um, Victorian mansion and there's this stone wall there and there these scientists are going in to try to investigate the idea of uh, these ancient stones they don't know where they're from do they record um, you know they, they think the house is haunted but or is it the stones themselves playing back the kind of um, poltergeist or kind of activity and that has begotten this term within the paranormal act- circles of the stone tape theory which is so you know it's something cool when they end up you know the real 
people end up naming something yeah. after it. And that's very much like this, where it, there's steps that go off to the ceiling. And if you go up the steps, you go into another world and it's freaky as all hell. And I think they might've even done it live as well as the BBC does say with the doctor who stuff to a certain extent and that stuff. So, you know, it's, it was part of their Christmas. They have a very rich history of Christmas day, ghost story kind of fair. And this was their 1972, I think ghost story, uh, you know, entry for BBC. And it's, it's freaky as hell. And I didn't know about it until a couple of years ago because I bought it on a double disc with that Ghost Watch, which was another 2002 program where they shot that as it was a uh, like a mockumentary, almost like Blair Witch, you know. And that's freaky as hell. And this was the B side, and then this was all scary. Nigra Neal as well, the Stone Tape. So found that very satisfying for all your you horror people who like this sort of thing out there. Yeah, I, this was good. And, and of course, the Quatermass movies. Yeah, the Quatermass movies are great, yeah. They have a, different a, titles depending on where you're watching them, but in America, you got the Quatermass Experiment, yeah. Quatermass... What's the second one called? I can't... I don't recall. I off can't remember. What, Quatermass in the Pit. Classic. Yeah, yeah, classic, baby. And shout out to um, uh, Neil, because he also wrote the adaptation of The Abominable Snowman, the early Hammer, which I absolutely love with Peter Cushing. That They based that off a of BBC play, The Creature, which I, now has been lost to time, the live. And I think the quarter masses were first done live on BBC. And I think they were like a five or six part, maybe six episode over six weeks that had everyone riveted. And I think only two survived because that was back in the day when nobody thought of saving stuff. So that's why, like, maybe the first. You're talking about, like, they were radio season. programs, radio plays. No, they were television. Oh, okay, yeah. And they were, t they were broadcast live. There's a great early Peter Cushing did 1984. And that was how Peter Cushing kind of got labeled. Everyone thinks of him as because of Hammer Horror, but prior to him doing Hammer, he was labeled as the horror guy because he did this 1984 broadcast, which you can find on YouTube, which is really good. I watched, and again, it's live. Come like we've talked about, like the Studio One or Playhouse 90 of the live 50s era. So quarter masses were done, but it was back in the day before BBC or people like that thought that keep stuff so you have a season or two of doctor who which they may only retain the audio to and they have stills because the video or the film whatever however the kinescope wasn't kept sadly you know no one thought of the uh future generations wanting to see this stuff when after it was aired so um it's kind of uh must viewing all that kind of stuff but uh, it's good to ta tackle this carpenter because this was something that you know you know when we're getting into the innards of him it's it's great to have and watch and and uh cover you know and doing it for dave too is also special yeah for us as well, well you know it's uh it's one of my favorites i've probably watched this with dave certainly discussed it with dave it's also we didn't even really talk about the music but in my opinion it's one of uh carpenter and howarth's best scores yeah and i know dave loved the music dave loved which i do also there's the music that plays like when they're setting everything up they get to the church um, it's like a well, crazy, I mean, it's played on the synth, but it's like this crazy, like bass line <laughs> that kind of yeah. carries that tune, but love this score. Howarth and Carpenter only end up doing the, they live together after this. So it's kind of towards the end of their collaboration, but you also get to introduce the choral aspects to a Carpenter movie that I don't think really existed in a Carpenter score before that, of course, because of the religious, uh, undertones or overtones of the movie we get um these like synth choir pads that are that are classic and i love the opening sequence which is 
a great piece of Carpenter music playing under that like 11 minute credit sequence. One thing worth noting right before we wrap this up is that this is one of those movies that had that the original TV broadcast version is different. Oh, really? And I cannot find it. Um, but apparently there's a, there's differences throughout the whole movie, but the biggest difference is the opening and on the scream factory Blu-ray, they have clearly taken off of somebody's VHS cause they block out the, the logo of the, of the, they blur out the logo of whatever channel it's taped off of. And you have the TV closed caption, like logo at the top of the, of the screen. They, they show the opening cause apparently the opening is the most different one. They burn through the credit sequence pretty quickly and they move a lot of the priest stuff of like the priest dying and the, and the nun finding him to like kind of the end of it. And it's really focusing on the students. And there's a little more explanation in that scene, the early scene when uh, the character of Brian is playing solitaire, watching the TV and he turns it up to hear about the, the, um, the solar uh, thing, the whatever's happening and um, the supernova. And then there's like a long news report that explains. And the archdiocese is collaborating with the, you know, with physicists at the college, like trying to really like get to the point faster. Yeah. And then it, that scene ends with Brian like laying down and going to sleep. And then it does like, like wave to the (laughs) priest laying in bed, dying with like the key on it in the, in the little chest on his, on his chest, implying that, is it a dream? Like, is the whole movie a dream? (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Because then of course, you know, the movie ends with him waking up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very strange. And I would love to get a copy of the whole TV version to see like what else is different, but it's a really odd opening. Like you can see like, okay, we need to get to, we need to get to the, chase a little bit faster like we let's speed up the credits and let's give a bunch of explanation at the top just to clear things up but um the fact that like the transition from that to like the rest of the movie is is like a a wavy dream a transition is very strange but as i mentioned one of my favorite carpenter movies and since carpenter is my favorite director uh by that virtue one of my favorite movies uh prince of darkness this was uh, Halloween 2023 edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Thank you, and we uh, uh, apologize for the long buildup where we talked about our fallen friend. Um, hope that didn't bore too many of you and uh, cause some of you to not listen to the rest of it. Uh, you're missing this message right now. But uh, uh, anything to say before we go to sleep? Because it is... <laughs> no i I think this is great and and for people who haven't seen it maybe just you know uh people like myself a couple years ago this is definitely must watch carp you know so get it done go watch it if if we haven't already spoiled the hell out of it for you (laughs) get it done spoiler alert (laughs) get it done yeah um and then i guess just the regular amble if you like what we're doing check out our back catalog um you can follow us on uh, multiple platforms instagram Facebook, uh, Twitter. We don't post too often, but we do post here or there. Um, you can find us independently. You know, you can find my stuff, my books. If you want to support us, we always say buy a book. We're both on Amazon, our uh, independent stuff we've done. 
Uh, I've got my two books, Blood in the Streets and Morris P.I., The Men from uh, Ice House 4. And, um, you know, you can find what else I'm doing, too, online as well. Keep up with us. Um, you can find us if you want to. And, Blake, how about you? Yeah. Uh, my books are Score to Death, the conversa- Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, and Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, compilation of interviews with composers who have contributed to the horror genre, including John Carpenter and Alan Howard. Themselves. Tights tonight's movie um, in the process of making a documentary based on those books and a uh, compilation album of horror movie themes vinyl um, on vinyl and CD we're in the that, that's in the works um, and you can follow me at score to death on Facebook Twitter and Instagram again I haven't really been posting much either but uh, when there's news it will be posted and um, we as Dion said, uh, check out the back catalog because we have a lot of Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, we do. If you're into Carpenter and you liked this episode, you're come to the right place. <laughs> many a Carpenter movies, yeah, uh, on the show. Plus, you know, Over the Top, which is another '87 classic. So. Yeah, yeah, nothing to do with Carpenter, but we can probably find a connection. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, that's what's happening out west, and you know, keep it. Be safe out there in these times and, um, you know, have a good Halloween season. Enjoy yourself. Uh, try to relax if you can. And, um, you know, uh, have some fun. I try to take my own advice because I don't do any of that. So, um, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, you can you know where to find us. We love to interact with everybody and hear your comments, questions, concerns. And, um, you know, um, we will talk to you very soon. Later. Thank you.